Think Humanities, a podcast for people who love history, philosophy, culture, literature, civic dialogue, and the arts. Think Humanities, from Kentucky Humanities, where we've been telling Kentucky stories for 45 years. Here is your host, Bill Goodman. On Thursday, September 21st at 6.30 p.m. at the Lyric Theater near downtown Lexington, Kentucky Humanities will present a community conversation titled Aunt Jemima and the Complexities of Race, a conversation about race relations and stereotypes in Kentucky. The discussion begins with a brief Kentucky Chautauqua drama of Nancy Green, also known as Aunt Jemima by professional actress Deborah Falk. The performance will be followed by a community discussion about stereotypes and race relations and how the humanities can help expose and shatter these stereotypes. How can we all become more racially conscious? Leading the scholarly panel is Dr. Kelly Madison, professor of cultural politics and media studies at California State University in Los Angeles. Dr. Madison's areas of expertise include the cultural and media politics of race and racism, whiteness, violence, youth identity, gender, and economic class. She's the founder of Beautiful Struggle, a public radio program on the air in Los Angeles and Santa Barbara, California. Dr. Madison, welcome to the podcast. Uh, Thanks for having me. It's good to be talking to you. Tell me uh, more about your background, uh, your uh, your roots, if you will, and what brought you to the scholarship that you now teach and talk about uh, the work that you do at Cal State. Well, I come from an Air Force family. I was in in uh, Vandenberg Air Force Base in California at Vandenberg Air Force Base, and um, my parents. Uh, my father is from Lexington, Lexington, Kentucky. And my mother is from England, and they met in England. And we lived uh, around the world. Um, Shortly after I was born, we moved to the Philippines. Then we actually moved to Montana. Then we moved to Norway. And we lived in Norway for five years, and then we came back to the United States. And I was interested in, uh, in learning about race because... It wasn't an issue for me and for my family. Um, and I remember the first time I learned about race was from a European-American girl um, at the Oslo School for uh, American young people in Norway. And it was kind of surprising to me. She was asking me what color I was, and I couldn't understand what she was trying to say because I hadn't been introduced to the idea of race or racism, but she had. And um, just discovering that there was this meaning people were making out of the color of people's skin was interesting to me, and I could tell that there was a lot behind it in terms of history. Even as a young child, I, I realized that something strange was going on with regards to it. And when we came back to the United States, my the fact that my dad is a darker-skinned African-American and my mother is a lighter-skinned European woman actually had some kind of meaning, a negative meaning for some people in the United States. And the idea that I was a mixed child also had some kind of negative meaning. And it was interesting because it had no meaning like that 
up and right up until the point to, that we came back to the United States. So I was always interested in sort of analyzing race and race relations and racism from an outsider's perspective, having not been taught about that or embedded in it until I was at least 10 years old. And uh, most uh, scholars and, and history will tell us that, um, that you're speaking of the one-drop rule, and it really became um, a major part of your life and, and of your teaching now. Um, yeah, I mean, the, the one-drop rule is interesting because as I, I talk with my students about race and racism, I ask them, uh, why would the one-drop rule be that if you're one-drop black, you're black? Why wouldn't it be if you're one-drop white, you're white? It's supposed to be the master race's blood. Why wouldn't one-drop do it for you? <laughs> and the answer is nothing about logic because both of those are equally logical or illogical policies. Um, but it wouldn't have served the interest of the plantation elite to have the rule be that if you're one drop white, you're white, because all of those children that were being created um, through the sexual violence to African-American women who were being enslaved would be going free, and that would create a very dangerous situation for them in terms of keeping a society based on slavery under control. So you, you mentioned... had a whole group of people who were counted as white but had African-American ancestors being enslaved on the plantation, uh, that would be a political problem. So what I'm saying is that uh, the one-drop rule is interesting because it's completely political. It's not natural. It's not logical, but it makes total sense in terms of maintaining a particular structure that's being held in place by racism. Uh, you will soon see uh, Deborah Falk's uh, wonderful presentation of, of Aunt Jemima, uh, Nancy Green, uh, in person. The real person was born uh, into slavery in Montgomery County, Kentucky. And as an adult, um, she was hired to be the face of pancakes, uh, a friendly, animated African-American cook, uh, a stereotype of the way a a black house servant was supposed to look and act. And you've written um, and spoken about institutional race and institutionalizing race. How, how do you define uh, the term institutional race, and how does, how does uh, if I'm correct, uh, institutionalizing race in this aspect of, uh, of the stereotype of, um, of Aunt Jemima, how, how, do those, how are those terms connected well, a lot of people think about race or racism um, as being about, well, well, they think of race as something that's natural, that there are these natural divisions between humankind that we call races, which actually is not true. Um, but we do have an institutionalization of the idea of race. We have a racialization action verb mm -hmm. <laughs> that took place um, for various political reasons in the United States in order to naturalize certain types of class relations and also to shore up the power of the people at the top. Um, so a lot of people think of racism as being about attitudes, but it's not just about attitudes, it's also about policies. 
Um, and these policies took something that doesn't necessarily have to mean anything or to matter, which is skin color and certain types of physical features, and they institutionalized the idea through law that um, those things make a difference and in terms of your status and um, your safety and whether or not people are allowed to violate you in various ways. So while racism is about attitudes, definitely, um, the attitudes really flow from institutionalizing certain types of power relationships between people and especially um, institutionalizing the idea that if you're black, then you're allowed to be enslaved, you're allowed to have your entire life taken from you that is going to be passed on this enslavement to your children and your offspring. Um, and that's had really terrible moral and political consequences for the United States ever since. As you uh, know, Nancy Green, um, uh, also known as Jamama, uh, lived that character in the late 1800s. Was this, did, did we have the term institutional racism at that time? Um, there were people who were aware of it and people who critiqued it at that time. And the character of Nancy Green, which is a, a blackface minstrelsy type of character, those types of characters, those images of black people in, in shows and everything, uh, um, minstrel shows, and in this case, county fair shows, is an idea of black people that's there to entertain and to amuse and soothe a white audience or an audience of people who are invested in this idea that they're white. And there are, and what it what it makes me think about is the ways in which African American people as slaves and as people who were being violently subordinated had to behave in order to make sure that they weren't violated to um, have this sort of clownish attitude um, to make sure that they never said anything that was directly offensive um, as a matter of life and death. So underneath the sort of happy uh, caricature or stereotype that we see in blackface minstrelsy and other places, um, there's a real humanity underneath and, and it was really a very restricting on African Americans to have to behave in ways that, you know, were not who they really were, but they had to do in, in order to ensure their safety. Do we see that today? Um, I, I think so. I, uh, one of the things about um, the study of race relations between so-called black people and so-called white people is definitely about the ways in which people have to behave when there's a, a power differential going on. And so I think to this day, African Americans often, when they're in the workplace and when they're dealing with, with um, political authorities, when they're dealing with the police, have to behave in ways that might not be what they're actually feeling or thinking, but have to behave in ways that ensure that they can continue working or that will ensure their safety. I don't know if you saw it or not, but uh, in an August issue of uh, Time magazine, uh, in an article uh, titled The Hidden and Not-So-Hidden Racism in Kids' Literature, 
It uh, points out in a new book uh, entitled, Was the Cat in the Hat Black? The Hidden Racism of Children's Literature and the Need for Diverse Books by uh, Philip Nell, N-E-L. Uh, he went into examples, uh, studies the uh, the paradox of stories that are uh, meant to nurture young children, all of us that uh, grew up on that children's literature or read that to our, our own children, but can also do great harm. For example, he uses uh, the cat in the hat um, that uh, Dr. Seuss uh, uh, was uh, called a complicated figure, and many of his books promoted tolerance. But at the same time, uh, he wrote of racial stereotyping in characters uh, who wear, a quote, wear the eyes at a slant in uh, one of his uh, books, If I Ran the Zoo. Uh, he also points out uh, his famous cat in the hat took partial inspiration from minstrels, uh, taking a closer look at the white gloves and the extravagant top hat. So... I don't think until this was written, um, the book and this article, did did most white people think, uh, in other examples uh, uh, like Pippi Longstocking, uh, even The Little House on the Prairie and others, that stereotypical, and especially in um, a an African-American uh, fashion, were being used as... as um, as negative figures in children's literature, something that, that they they didn't know at the time, but when that's ingrained in you as a young child, look what happens when you grow up. Well, um, there are scholars that I've read who've talked about um, how Mickey Mouse also and Bugs Bunny are based on a sort of jazzy type of attitude that um, comes from blackface minstrel shows and I don't know if it's it's negative in one sense and it might be positive in another sense because if you think about why would the first national form of popular entertainment be white people dressing up as black people to entertain white audiences Mm -hmm. Um, there's a book by Eric Lott on blackface minstrelsy called On Love and Theft and in a situation where the political structure and the economic structure um, is about maintain is is set is it's a system that's created in a way that um, you have to have these racial divisions and you have to have a group of people that you're allowed to violate and exploit economically and the system of meaning behind it is the idea that white people are the real human beings and black people and Native Americans and Mexican Americans and Chinese people aren't really human beings and therefore they can have their land taken and all of that. Um, But at the same time, you have this community, African Americans, who are actually very culturally powerful in terms of um, their song, their dance, um, their ways of being in a way that's so attractive. How do you get to enjoy that and still uphold the system of white supremacy? You do it by creating these caricatures that and having white men darken their faces and 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 also white women in some cases uh, but mainly white men darken their faces and act black so what are audiences doing they're enjoying black culture but in a way that doesn't take it exactly seriously although there's a love 
for, for African-American culture that they're getting to enjoy, but while still maintaining this hierarchy and this sense that black people are inferior to white people. How can all of society become more informed, uh, educated about race and racism? Uh, well, there's a ton of wonderful books about the history of race and racism. Um, some of, one of my favorite scholars is uh, David Rodiger, who is a historian who studies whiteness, um, um, but also he studies the image and the idea of blackness and black resistance, and he has some great books. Um, there are a whole bunch of books about uh, the image of black people in the white mind, but David Rodiger also wrote a book that was about the image of whiteness in the black mind, which was a very unusual thing to do. <laughs> yeah. And it's called um, Black uh, Black on White, Black Writers on What It Means to Be White. Mm-hmm. So um, I would say if people would like to learn more about this very complex and fascinating, although very um, troubling history that we have and would like to be involved in helping to continue to move us forward into a world where we see everybody as human beings, that they check out some of the scholarship um, from David Rodiger and just a ton of other people on the history of the idea of race. Uh, We're discussing uh, Aunt Jemima and the complexities of race, a special Kentucky Humanities community conversation to be held on September the 21st uh, at 6.30 p.m. at the Lyric Theater uh, at 300 East 3rd Street in Lexington. It's open to the public and free of charge. And then on Friday, the uh, the panel will be, uh, that's on September the 22nd, at 9 a.m. at the Frederick Douglass High School, the new Fayette County High School. It is, um, uh, we're going to bring in high school students from each of the five area high schools. Uh, they will see the same presentation by Chautauqua actor uh, Deborah Falk, and then uh, they will also uh, be uh, involved and engaged uh, in the conversation that will be uh, held. Um, The other guest on the panel, um, and my guest, I should uh, tell everyone on this Think Humanities podcast, is uh, one of our scholars uh, and our panel member, Dr. Kelly Madison of Cal State in Los Angeles, and other panelists include Ricardo Nazario E. Colon, the Chief Diversity Officer at Western Carolina University, Dr. Gerald Smith, University of Kentucky African American History Professor, and John Schrader, a Lexington lawyer and formerly a, a family court judge in Fayette County. And the panel will be moderated by KET's Renee Shaw. Uh, Dr. Madison, you've uh, participated in a number of discussions, of course, about race. Uh, you've written about the complexities of of the topic, uh, talk to many students um, uh, in your teaching and your coursework uh, over the years. What would be the best outcome uh, on the evening of September the 21st um, at the conclusion of our community conversation? What would you like uh, as a, um, as a, either an outcome or a positive outcome uh, during our panel discussion? And then, of course, hearing from the audience, too. Um, The best outcome for me would be for people to understand that uh, racism is really optional, (laughs) that the idea of race is something that was imposed on us in order to 
maintain certain types of political and economic relations and, and profit, and that we really don't need it anymore. It's an impediment to our nation moving forward. Um, I'd like for people to think to, at the end of the program, really think about um, where their racialized identity came from and whether or not it serves what we'd like to have in the country, which is um, justice and fairness and uh, empathy and kindness and peace. Uh, there are a lot of things going on in the world right now and in our country in particular uh, where there's a, a uh, resurgence of racist conflict. And I would like at the end of the program, the greatest outcome for me would be that the people listening are educated in a way that makes it so that they could be positive agents of change in terms of undoing some of this conflict, being able to see the humanity of the different people um, involved in this conflict, and just moving our nation forward. Uh, Dr. Madison, Professor of uh, Cultural Politics and Media Studies at Cal State in Los Angeles, and a panel member for our discussion on September the 21st. Uh, Dr. Madison, it'll be um, a pleasure, and um, we look forward to having you uh, in Lexington uh, and uh, back in Kentucky where you have some roots and where you will meet some relatives. Uh, we appreciate your time today and look forward to being with you on September the 21st. Yes, I'm looking forward to it too. For more information about our community conversation, visit our homepage, kyhumanities.org. And for this edition of Think Humanities, I'm Bill Goodman. Think Humanities is a podcast from Kentucky Humanities and is a production of the University of Kentucky College of Arts and Sciences. This podcast was created at the Media Depot. Think Humanities is available at kyhumanities.org, iTunes, and SoundCloud. Thank you.